Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. Now, I know all of you are huge Real Housewives fans. So guess what? We're going to get the inside scoop today. Please welcome author Dave Quinn, his new book, Not All Diamonds and Rosé, the inside story of the Real Housewives from the people who lived it, which is a huge bestseller. Welcome, Dave. Thank you so much, Melissa. I'm honored to be here. So, so glad to see you today. Well, thank you. Glad to see you, too. What a monster hit you have (laughs) on your hands. Yeah, it's been kind of wild. You know, we went into it really excited about uh, the uh, the ability to kind of capture this uh, this ride in history or in reality TV history, right? So many people, such huge fans of the Real Housewives franchise, multiple installments over 15 years. And we wanted to try to understand what it was really like to be a housewife, kind of go through the history of the show and all the increments and see how different people approach it. Uh, but we did not expect that this many fans would jump on it. So it's been a real thrill. It, of course. Now, when did you become interested in the ho- the Real Housewives? Well, I have been a reality TV fan since the beginning. I mean, I remember watching uh, An American Family. I remember watching The Real World when it first premiered. So I kind of grew up with the genre. And I loved also soap operas. I used to watch every single day, all my children uh, with my mom, like it was just kind of inherent into our lives. So when the Real Housewives franchise began in 2006, it was kind of like the best of both worlds. It really felt like I was watching a live soap opera. And that's what I love so much about the franchise is that it has that soapy feel still. So I've watched since the beginning, actually. I watched the original, original. Um, when you started first watching, did you have any, because I, I know from your book, you started watching immediately. Yeah. Immediately <laughs> when it was just these crazy women in Coto de Casa. Yeah. And, of and, course. You know, and I, I watched because I knew people who lived in Coto de Casa. So I was like, oh, this will be fun. Um, when we first started watching it, did you have any clue the monster hit it was going to become? No, I did not. And neither the interesting thing is comes in the book is that none of the people who were actually working on the show felt that way. Scott Dunlop, the original kind of uh, mm-hmm. producer on the show, was living in Coda de Casa, had a background uh, essentially in improv and in marketing and saw that there was like a world around him that was really interesting and that he thought that he could capitalize on it. He cast a a ton of people in the uh, region to kind of see what it would be like and brought this really long tape to, uh, to pitch to Bravo. And they saw in there that this, if we focused on the female characters, it could be really interesting to see what it would be like. And of course, Desperate Housewives was big at the time. The OC was big at the time. It felt like, uh, it would be the perfect sort of world to show the real housewives of the OC, what their lives were like. And nobody thought it was going to be that big. Mm -hmm. They actually ended up re-editing the entire show. They invested a lot of money. They hoped because at the time Bravo had the success of the um, queer eye queer eye. Yeah. But they didn't have anything else in their programming block. So this was a real big surprise for them. And for me, even watching what I thought was really interesting was that Bravo wasn't that into it. Andy Cohen talks very honestly in the book about like he was like and he was an executive at the time, one of the people who was working on it. He was like, eh, they all really, especially after the first cut and they had to go back and re-edit it. They were all just like, eh, they thought maybe one season kind of took a flyer on it. Yeah. Um, 
which is fascinating to me that they really were not, they were like, mm, you know, maybe, maybe not. Not a lot of faith put in it when it first aired. Not at all. And Lauren Zelaznik, who then was running Bravo, you know, she was one of the people who basically said, let's add of Orange County to this. And then maybe we could do another city. The thought was really that, like, this wouldn't be something that would last beyond a year. They were actually talking that each season they would cast completely different people. I mean, they really did not know what they had on their hands. And it was only in reruns that the show started to kind of pick up steam. And that was a programming decision, they say in the book, that uh, that a lot of the team had learned when they were working at VH1. A lot of those people had come over mm-hmm. from VH1, and they realized that when you reran things, uh, like they were doing with Flavor of Love and all of those sorts of celebrity dating shows uh, and other celebrity shows, that that's when the audience started to kind of get on board. So it was in reruns that Orange County found its true success. It was really the beginning of those marathons. Yes, of course. Which now are sort of standard practice in the in the reality TV world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think every season that a new Housewives franchise is coming, you can tell because Bravo will start re-airing old seasons of that franchise. You know, Miami is on the air right now, and you can say, oh, because well, the new season of Miami is coming. It's just to get the viewers hooked a little. Um. But what you you brought up that they went was it five seasons before launching a new franchise? I think it was like almost three, but still long enough. I mean, it took a few years to get those seasons out, and then New York was the first intro that they did, and Atlanta and New Jersey they all followed pretty quickly after that. Uh, one of the things you talk about is also the tone of the show between season one and season two completely changed. And it became much more, like, how do I say not as nice? It became bitchier. Yeah, and that really can, a lot of it can be attributed to Tamara Judge. So Tamara joined the show in the third season, and she was the first housewife who had an opinion about another housewife. Up until that point, they had kind of filmed them separately They would get together for like a dinner every once in a while, but they were really focused on their own lives. They weren't necessarily in each other's lives. And they weren't commenting on each other's lives. Right, exactly. But Tamara had opinions and she let it be known. And that's when the show started shifting and they, you started to see the confessional as an, as a place for them to comment on what was happening in everyone else's lives and have strong opinions about it. The show really shifted. And over the years, of course, has involved, evolved into this giant soap opera that we all love. It's interesting because the original Housewives were not media trained <laughs> and no. did not know. And you bring in someone uh, like Tamara Judd, who you started to feel like she had watched the show, she knew what she was getting into and knew how to play it. Right, of course. And she got it, yeah. Yeah, and then you watch slowly the other ones shift. Mm-hmm. Who who started training them? Who said to them, it's okay to do these things, but also to not freak out on how something's edited? Because well, we the- all, by the way, because we all know with reality TV at this point, a lot of a lot of it is done in the edit to make certain situations play a certain way, which is not necessarily accurate to how they played. Yeah, no, of course. I, I think that um, the various franchises have different producers. 
And each one of those producers really seemed to hold true what I learned in my interviews with them to the fact that they try to keep things as real as they possibly can, rooted in the action. They're not scripted. They're not telling the women what to do, but they try to keep as much reality in the situation as they can. But like you mentioned, these women have caught on over the years on how things go. Now a housewife joining the show walks in with a glam squad, a PR team, a a business that she's ready to launch, a strategy. Bethany Frankel really started to shift things. Bethany was the first housewife who came in with a plan. She saw this show as an opportunity to launch her business and kind of take her into the next level. And once she did that, other housewives really quickly saw what she was doing and tried to replicate that. So much so that, you know, there's been long rumored a clause in all of the contracts called the Bethany Clause that, you know, uh, prevents these women from kind of making too much money off of their uh, their businesses because the network uh, saw so much success. So that is sort of uh, the Bethany impact. Why, why do they do that? That's fascinating. That's fascinating to me that they have an actual the Bethany Clause. Well, it's rumored. Also... <laughs> How very often, and I know this from other shows, the network usually asks for passive income from these things, and it's considered a derivative of their show. Right. Do they do that now? Well, everyone that I spoke to about this Bethany clause was not able to confirm uh, on the Or deny. (laughs) Right. That that the network had ever taken a cut from their businesses. And I think it's because, from what I understand, you have to make a certain amount of money and most of them don't actually get up to that. Uh, But one of the housewives really framed it in a good way to me. She's like, I see the investment, if if my business ever made that much money, this would just be a marketing budget. And it's true. It's an incredible platform when you think about how many women's lives have been shifted and changed because of uh, the focus that the show has given them. So New York was second. How did they, or how York- do they go ahead? How do they start casting? How does that, because that's fascinating to me. I've had friends that have gotten calls. I'm like, how would they find you? <laughs> How did they, for first, how did they cast New York? So in the beginning, what was so interesting about New York is that it started as a totally different concept. It was called Manhattan Moms. They were focusing on a group of of, uh, wealthy mothers and really uh, the like process of parenting in New York City the schools, the you know excessive uh, uh, application processes to get into those schools, things like that. And, and what happened is a production company presented the concept to Bravo. Bravo had it in development. And then when they saw the success of Orange County, he said, well, I wonder if this could become the Real Housewives of New York City. And that's really where the shift became. But Jill Zarin, who I'm sure you know you know well, uh, was one of the original cast members of Manhattan Moms. So was Alex McCord at the time. Uh, she had kids who were young and going through the process of getting them into you know these sorts of elite, uh, prestigious private schools. And from there, they basically cast off of their circle and mostly Jill's circle. She's the great connector. She got them Luann. She brought them in Ramona. She brought them in Bethany. That kind of all circled through her uh, friend group. And that's often how when franchises begin, they try to start. They start with friends who know one another and see the connections within their circle. Now, throughout the years, casting has really 
changed. And oftentimes these women don't truly know one another. It's like a tangential connection, but the casting directors work really uh, diligently to get recommendations from the women and then go through social media searching for people who may appear to have really interesting lives. And then there's rounds of interviews and uh, tapes and all those sorts of things. I had a friend that actually tested to be a friend. And I could not believe the fact that she's testing to be a friend. That absolutely floored me. What is the, like you said, rounds and rounds of interviews, but like, how did they even find Jill Zarin? Well, Jill, I think had, if I remember correctly, had applied through some other, again, when they were searching for Manhattan moms, either knew the producer or saw something and applied. I mean, the early Orange County uh, season, when they were going back to find more women, they put an ad in the local uh, Orange County newspaper and Vicki Gunvalson's son saw the ad and responded to it thinking he would be in it. And then they, they met his mom and took her. So uh, you never really know some of the casting stories. And I asked everybody how they got cast are so interesting. Some were recommended uh, through other housewives. Brandy Glanville was at an event and brought her friend, Kristen Takeman and introduced her to Andy Cohen and said, she should be your next New York housewife. And the next day, Kristen Takeman got a phone call. I mean, it is as easy as that. Carol Razowell was a friend of Andy Cohen's and he had known her through the social scene and invited her in. Uh, other times it's, uh, you know, of course in Beverly Hills, there's a lot of PR reps making phone calls in and saying that they want their clients to be considered or vice versa, you know, casting directors reaching out. Uh, there are so many celebrities throughout the years that the casting directors have gone out to Carmen Electra, uh, Heather Locklear, Lori Lachlan. These are people who Ooh, that would have, that would have been a good one. Wouldn't that have been <laughs> great? Oh my goodness. To watch that go on on TV. I bet they're kicking themselves. <laughs> oh, that would have been amazing. But you bring up celebrities because now they've incorporated celebrities. You have Garcelle, you have Lisa. Mm. I, I don't know. It seems strange to me because these women are still working on their other projects. And I know, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Right. But again, people don't realize how much time it takes to do a reality show, especially one like uh, Housewives. So yeah. how are these women, these slurs, balancing their, as I call it, their real work, but that's not really their real work because their real work now is being... A housewife. How do they? How do they do that? Because I always think to myself, when we were doing our reality show and Fashion Police, literally plus everything else, run ragged. Yeah, I think it's exhausting. And one of the things, one of the reasons why we called the book "Not All Diamonds and Rose." Of course, it's a reference to a, an infamous Lisa Vanderpump uh, tagline that she had on Beverly Hills. But it was also a way to show that being a housewife isn't as glamorous as you think. It is a really tight shooting schedule. You're shooting for about six months out of the year. Producers are asking you to live your life out loud, you know, and as much of your life to pack into that shooting schedule. So if somebody was having an anniversary, throw a party, you know, like we need to do a big event for kind of everything. And it becomes exhausting to coordinate all of that, plus your outfits every single uh, time you film have to be different. Your glam, your makeup, 
that you're balancing with your general schedule. Then when the show is finished, those confessionals film for a little bit longer. So you could be filming confessionals even into the time that the episodes are airing on television. And then, of course, you're reliving it all through the press and the PR and everything. It is a 24-7, you know, 365-day-a-year job in many ways. No one is able to escape from it. Even when you leave the show, fans are every day in your social media account saying, oh, I wish you'd come back to the show. Why are you on the show? We miss you on the show. So you are in this uh, mafia, if you will, of Housewives for Life. And I think it's really, really hard. You, you brought up glam. <laughs> yes. How Now, in the first couple of seasons, they were not expecting glam. How much <laughs> now is expected that you have to show up full hair and makeup, full outfits the entire time, and who is footing the bill for that? <laughs> well, the housewives themselves are footing the bill for it. It all comes out of their own pockets. Production is not paying for them to have, you know, glam artists and this and that. But they have realized over the years that they want to look a certain way on camera. Uh, you can blame, I think, two things for that. HGTV being one of them, right? Uh, or H. Yeah, the, the high-definition television. Yes, HD, uh, not HG. Excuse me. Uh, HDTV being a big part of that. And then uh, Erica uh, Girardi, she joined the show with the Glam Squad and I think was the first housewife to really show what a Glam Squad could do for you. And now, of course, it's become um, in all of the seasons to be uh, almost standard in that process. But it's interesting because... Various shows have different personalities. So, for example, Orange County is known as kind of like the the normal housewives. They don't necessarily want a celebrity on that show, though celebrities have often tried to get on that show. Uh, Christy Turlington, I believe, for a long time was uh, was trying to get on. But they like it to be a show that is more grounded in the reality of being a housewife. So their housewives don't necessarily have huge glam squads often. I mean, Tamara Judge for years was just doing her own hair and makeup. Vicki Gumbelson, same sort of thing. And I think that Beverly Hills is where the celebrities live. Atlanta, because it's, you know, uh, of course, uh, an emerging Black Hollywood market, that becomes a celebrity haven. So people like Kim Fields can join that show. Candy Burris with a huge music career. Um, and New York to some extent. You know, because Kelly Ben Simone was a very well-known celebrity and was joined and joined the show in season two. So New York has allowed, you know, that sort of prestige to be in that market. But you're not going to see a celebrity necessarily joining New Jersey anytime soon, I don't think. Well, there's an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, Wendy Williams, sign on up. <laughs> exactly. Because, I mean, I always just look at the clothing and the legend. It's like, it must cost them a fortune in wardrobe. Yeah, it's expensive. And, and and how much are they making to foot this bill? <laughs> well, more and more over the years, my understanding again is that everybody's salary is different, but that like most jobs, the longer you're there, the more increases you get. But I've heard from the majority of the housewives in their one season or their first season uh, that they are not necessarily um, making enough to foot the bill of all their spending to be on the show. And that, of course, introduces a new problem, which is many of these women feel that they have to have these extravagant lifestyles and keep up with the Joneses and therefore will spend a little bit more than they need to to do that and often, as we've seen, get themselves in some trouble. 
we're going to get to scandals in a minute. But I think about that, like, I'm just thinking about that right now. Like, for example, if I wanted to be a housewife and had the opportunity to do so, I don't dress like that every day. How come they've never, in the higher-end franchises like Beverly Hills and New York, have they not introduced someone a little more real? Well, Are people just not interested in that? Yeah, I don't think so. And it's interesting when you think about when they did, Teddy Mellencamp, a good example of somebody who was very open her first season about like, I don't dress like you guys do. I am very normal in the work, in the clothes that I wear. She was mocked, made fun of by the audience, teased very, you know, uh, very often for her style. And then given essentially a makeover by the other housewives, you know, we'll the big storyline that season was let's take Teddy shopping and get her fancier clothing. And over the course of the three seasons she was on the show, her style evolved to be much more glamorous than I think she even wanted it to be. So there is a pressure. Did the other housewives pay for her clothing in her makeover? (laughs) (laughs) I wonder. I mean, I could see Kyle Richards uh, throwing her some some dollars that way. (laughs) I mean, seriously, it's like it's all well and good. They want to take you for a makeover, but, you know, Gucci costs a lot. (laughs) It does. It certainly does. But it's not just style. You know, I think over the seasons, these women feel pressure to perform in ways for reality television that isn't necessarily real. And you get housewives who walk into these shows as, you know, sideline producers in their heads and try to, you know, uh, produce drama. And, you know, uh, Aviva Drescher talks very openly about that in the book, that she saw this as like an acting gig almost, that throwing a leg was like, let me show you a performance. And I mean, you've both been on reality TV and you've also produced. uh, And I know that you see both sides of it, Melissa, because it really is hard. You want to strike a balance. The producers want you to be as real as you can be, but the women sometimes uh, in their reality are control freaks who want to produce either a perfect life or a very dramatic life to get them more seasons on the show. But also, let's be honest, real is boring. (laughs) Real is boring. It is. It totally is. I would be a completely boring uh, reality star. If you threw a glass of wine in my face, I would tell you that I'm so sorry. I don't know (laughs) what I did. Let's try and, you know, make this right. Like, you have to be somebody who uh, has complete conviction that you're right all the time. You have to be somebody who is... uh, almost, I don't say delusional in a bad way, but almost kind of uh, glib or or unaware of what other people think about you or don't really care whatsoever. You have to be fearless. You have to be uh, kind of kooky. And I think it's hard to be all those things at once. It, it, it is, because I remember when we were shooting our reality show, the hardest thing was to come up with things to do because honestly, all we did was work. Right. And that's terribly boring. I I, I totally understand that. But yet you and your mother were incredible reality stars. I mean, I always say this about uh, about Joan, a, a hilarious comedian, a trailblazer, but also an incredible reality star. I mean, how many times, Melissa, I quote on the daily, you're a poker player. <laughs> a poker players are trash, honey. I mean, that is your mom in a moment of real emotion, living out loud, being in that space. And I thought that was 
captivating, incredible television, iconic in the history of reality television. Uh, so I know that you know how to do it, but it's not always easy, I'm sure, to relive that over and over again. Well, no, and she was much more out loud than than me, <laughs> you know. But I remember with our show, we're just like, oh, like, what are we going to do now? Okay, what would my mom do? Okay, she'd take a sledgehammer and go through a wall, you know. <laughs> And she was just like, don't worry, I'm going to pay to have the wall repaired. You know what I mean? <laughs> Off camera. Right. I mean, and re- listen, it's it's difficult, but you also need a you in the mix to make her more interesting. There has to be the balance. So oftentimes the audience of, and especially Housewives fans, will criticize the boring ones or the normal ones. And they say, like, what is she doing there? She's not that exciting. But you need the, those sorts of personalities to ground everyone else. You can't have a, a, a reality show of all Nini Leakses. You need women who uh, bring Nini a little bit down to earth. So the Cynthia Baileys, the Robin Dixons, the Dolores Catanias are all very valuable, necessary housewives in the mix because they are voices of reason. They are kind friends. They will uh, give the show, and I think, in the ensemble the best balance that it needs. I was going to say, they're the Greek chorus. Yes, of course. They're, they're the Greek chorus going, these people are crazy. And again, you were an incredible Greek chorus on that season. I remember very clearly a lot well, of the commentary you, you had. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, because I try and always take the position of, this is not real. <laughs> of course. But that brings me to something else, the friends. There's now huge competition to just become a friend, and then hopefully you'll get promoted to an actual housewife. How did this, I want to say, how did this crazy begin? But it's not crazy, but like that literally people are crawling over each other to just be a friend. Yeah, well, I think the first friend in Housewives history was a woman named Jennifer Gilbert. It was like season three of The Real Housewives of New York City. And how it happened is that the cast was looking at, the producers rather, were looking at new women to come and join the show and they that season found two they found sonia morgan and jennifer gilbert and they thought let's bring them in we'll film with them we'll see who kind of pops and sonia really popped she had a huge personality very extravagant lifestyle they had actually talked to her about joining the show in season one and now here she was ready kind of to be a housewife in season three whereas jennifer didn't really have that sort of energy, but she was still a good, uh, you know, woman to have in the mix. So she became a friend and that role was basically created and has been like a catch all over the years for a housewife who maybe doesn't necessarily have the, the wealth of a personal story to carry herself on her own. So oftentimes the husband doesn't want to film or the kids aren't able to film, or even if they are, there's not, they're not that exciting. Oftentimes they're not as vocal in the room. They're not as involved in the drama. And you can see sometimes they'll bring housewives on and say, we don't know whether you're going to be a housewife or a friend. We'll figure it out throughout the filming. And oftentimes some of those women will overperform in an opportunity to give themselves a full-time role. And that doesn't work either. So again, you just have to be yourself as much as you can be and recognize that the producers are, are hiring you for what they see. And you just have to show them that as often as you can without trying to be somebody you're not. Are the friends actual friends? 
sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't, you know, sometimes they are women in the circle who people know, a scholar who joined as a friend this season of the Real Housewives of Potomac really had a connection, but, uh, and built friendships with a lot of the women. Other times, you know, they're brought in in the same sort of way of other women. So Bershawn in the Real Housewives of New York City, uh, from what I've heard, was somebody that they were considering to bring in as a real housewife, didn't have a wealth of personal story, but had met, you know, Ramona during test scenes. So when Ramona was filming during the season, she said, let me inter- let me involve my friend Bershawn, you know, and she, at that time, friend is like a, you know, a thin word. We saw in Atlanta, Portia Williams, who is now engaged to Simon Gubadia. Uh, Simon was, we all met him on the show when he was married to Fallon Gubadia, who was a friend of the show. And Portia said that they were friends on air, but then afterwards, when she got engaged to this woman's husband, uh, she said, actually, we were never friends. I only met her during filming. So the audience doesn't really know. It changes per person. Okay, well, you just brought up scandals. (laughs) There's a lot of them in this show. What's been the biggest scandal, do you think? Was it Brandy and Denise? Was it Teresa? I mean, obviously, people going, Jen Shaw. I mean, obviously, people going to jail is a pretty huge scandal, which we'll get into also, but not including prison time. What has been the biggest scandal? For me, the biggest scandal as a viewer has been Taylor Armstrong and her relationship with her uh, ex-husband and now deceased husband, uh, Russell Armstrong. He was abusing her behind the scenes. None of us really knew about that as viewers the first season, but we could tell that something was wrong with their relationship. And before the second season aired, he committed suicide. Um, So we saw throughout the airing of the second season, their marriage falling apart, her finally coming clean with the fact that he was abusing her and getting out of that marriage. That was very scandalous. And in fact, before that season aired, the network was getting a ton of flack after Russell uh, committed suicide that um, that they shouldn't air the show, that it was inappropriate, that they were responsible for this. And I think they handled it very well. They aired a, 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 a clip that they filmed right before um, with the housewives, except for Taylor, kind of getting together and talking through this process and grieving what had happened. And then we watched week and week as it kind of unfolded. But that for me was like a huge scandal. Um, now, of course, it, that's not as fun as say, you know, somebody throwing a glass of wine in front of their faces. Uh, but that really felt very serious. Another big scandal I would mention would be the White House party crashers that essentially brought down the Real Housewives of D.C. It only lasted one season because of the Salahis alleged party crashing at the uh, first state dim- state dinner in the Obama administration. I mean, that made global news. No, I, rem- I remember both of those, actually, because I was having lunch with, uh, at the time, a major executive who oversaw E! and Bravo and all these other shows when the scandal uh, about Taylor broke. And I remember sitting there going, you know, having lost a parent to suicide, going, wow, you're fucked. Yeah. You know, there's no way to handle this. And the network did take a lot of abuse. And they did try and fix it. But I always thought, ooh, how would I have handled that as a producer? How do you think they should have handled it? I mean, 
It's very difficult. And this is a question that I think fans are really struggling with right now. And I, I don't work for the network, so I can't speak for them specifically, but it's difficult in the uh, in the movement of the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, what a lot of people refer to as wokeness, which I just essentially will say to you is, in my perspective, kindness and consideration for how other people are feeling, that oftentimes housewives act out and do bad things and say bad things. Uh, those things may be racist. Those things may be homophobic or transphobic. Is the network responsible for those people's words? I don't necessarily think so. Um, but are they responsible? Should they be releasing statements to say that we don't condone this? Should they be firing them? It's hard to see. The network has made some decisions. They made a bunch of firings in the in the Vanderpump Rules spinoff after some of the house, uh, some of the cast members there had done things that the public really deemed to be very racist, and they got rid of them. Um, but they haven't made those same choices over other franchises and other uh, cast members who have seemingly done similar or even worse things. So. I think it's a very difficult job to be a network producer, and I don't necessarily know where that line is. And I'm kind of sitting back like everyone trying to figure it out myself. Have, have any, not on the Vanderpump Rules stuff, but has anyone been canceled? I, that's the thing. I don't really think they have. I mean, uh, name one person who's been canceled, and I'll tell you, I mean, uh, the, the name I often hear when I say that same thing is... People say, well, Bill Cosby was canceled. Well, I don't know. I mean, he's going to do a stand-up tour. He's out of prison. So, like, is he canceled? I don't think there ever really is a cancellation uh, of so, anybody. Um, looking back, favorite favorite group of housewives and favorite housewife moment. I, it's hard to beat throwing a leg. <laughs> and that, I even Teresa flipping a table. Like, throwing a leg is... <laughs> It's up there. It's pretty hilarious that uh, mm-hmm. that leg throw and the the faces mm-hmm. of everyone, the laughter in the room. I mean, Aviva talked about how she was she had prepared for that moment and she was ready for it. And all the housewives talk about how they knew something was going to happen, but that was pretty hilarious. Mm-hmm. I, I would I agree with you. I would put that up there. As far as group of women, I mean, I'm I just love the originals. And for me, uh, the original cast of The Real Housewives in New York City, Luann, Bethany, Alex, Jill, and Ramona are just so iconic in my brain. And I think they're, uh, that first season was such an exciting view. Um, I feel the same way about The Real Housewives of Atlanta. Those early seasons with Nini and Kim and Sheree were just incredible TV. What can you let us in on that's next. We know. <laughs> do we know a next city? I know Potomac's coming back, which I always confuse with DC. So I thought it was a dead soldier, but it's not. And I love the fact that Potomac replaced DC because DC and Potomac are pretty much the same thing. Right. Yeah. Of course. So Potomac basically has taken that spot of DC. Uh, we know that Salt Lake City was the most recent to premiere, and we've heard that they have announced that they're doing the Real Housewives of Dubai. Uh, so Caroline Stanbury, who fans mm-hmm. met through the uh, Ladies of London show, is allegedly filming that. And they're in production. And Andy has said great things about it. So inter- it'll be the first international housewives that Bravo is actually behind in producing. And I'm so excited to see that. 
But the show is also, I think, entering a new chapter because you have these crossover seasons that are airing on uh, Peacock, The Real Housewives Ultimate Girls Trip. And there's a new one coming with a bunch of the women, including Taylor and Jill and Dorinda up in the Berkshire. So I think the show is evolving in a really interesting way. I think that kind of anything goes, just like, you know, reality TV will always keep finding new ways to find, you know, to make itself relevant and interesting. But network television in and of itself is struggling, I think, in the world of streamers. So it's going to be interesting to see where Bravo goes from here. Is this franchise dead? I definitely don't think so. But is there uh, new ways that they'll find homes for these places? Will it always be on Bravo? Not necessarily. The Real Housewives of Miami coming back for a third, for a fourth season after being canceled years ago on Peacock. So there could be new lives for all of these shows on streaming networks, even the Real Housewives of DC. Maybe it'll come back. Who knows? Man, I gotta, I gotta get on there as a friend or something. <laughs> I need to do. I need. I think I need this job, Dave. Listen, you are. I'm all for it. I'm pushing <laughs> you. I will. I will make a call whenever you want. But <laughs> I only want to be a friend. I can't do it full time, and I am way too normal and boring. <laughs> like I, people always are shocked. Like I'm so normal, but I'm a good voice of reason. You're a great voice of reason, and I thank you. you. If you haven't read the book, download it, run out and get it. Not all diamonds and rosé. The inside story of the Real Housewives from the people who lived it. Dave, I'm going to keep having you back as my Real Housewives expert. It would be a dream. You are well. You have been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. I just want to thank all of my fans and all of my listeners for all of their support this year. It's been so much fun. I can't wait for next year and happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and thanks for listening.